Our sermon text is from Joshua chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, toward the northward boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, and to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Laboth Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misripoth Mayam, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them the rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Well, now let's uh, open up our Bibles. If you've got one, uh, you can turn it. We're, we're looking at Joshua chapter 13 through 21 today. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the, the seat right there and you can take it home. That's our gift to you. Uh, this is a long passage and uh, maybe on the surface, not the most exciting passage. Um, but I want you to know that ever since we have planned this series on the book of Joshua, I've actually been really excited for this week. Um, this is probably the biggest chunk of text I've ever had to preach on before. But uh, the passages, the chapters are actually really straightforward. It's, uh, if you read through 13 to 21, you'll find these are texts that describe dividing up the conquered land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you get a chance to go back and read through it, try to decipher all these cities and all that stuff, you'll, you'll realize there is a, a question hanging over this text. And it's the question that's been hanging over this whole book, really. Uh, the one that especially comes out with those last couple of verses we read, where, where God says, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies withstood them, for the Lord had given their enemies into their hands. It is, the question I'm talking about is the question of the conquest. It's the question of, how is this okay? How is it okay for the people of Israel to go into a foreign nation, unprovoked, and mercilessly slaughter all the people there? That's the question, right? What about the parable of the Good Samaritan? where Jesus is teaching people and he, he says that we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves and our neighbors include even the most despised among us. So how do we have a God who, on one hand, 
says, love your neighbors as yourself, and on the other hand says, kill all the men and women and children in the land of Canaan. Is it just that over the years, God has kind of mellowed out a little bit? Or maybe God's bipolar. Maybe he swings wildly from being a a genocidal maniac to being a pacifist. What's going on? Why does it make sense? How do we deal with something like that? Even for us, living in a city that is full of people who don't worship the Lord, who openly reject him, just like the Canaanites did. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, I'm really excited because I want to assure you that there are answers for your questions today in Scripture. In fact, these are answers that are vital for us to know if we're going to be able to make heads or tails of the Bible. If we're going to be able to read a passage like this and and understand it. And these are answers that when we understand them, actually offer us a beautiful glimpse into God's plan for creation. And I hope will motivate us. Motivate us how we can live a a radical, life-giving Christian life in our city. So today, that's what I want us to do, and here's how we're going to attack it. We're going to have three points here. The first is we need to understand God's values. The second point is we need to learn how to spot the intruder. And the third is we need to learn how to respond to the intrusion. Now, that doesn't make sense now, but it will in a minute. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, understand God's values, learn how to spot the intruder, and then how to respond to the intrusion. Okay, understanding God's values. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody ever heard of that? Some of you have. If you've been here, you've heard of it. It's this old document that we've used for years to teach people the basics of what Scripture teaches. Try to tell people what the Bible says. And one of the very early questions is, what is God? What is God? The answer, God is spirit. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God does not change. That's what it says. God does not change, but he is good. He is holy. He is always just. He is always true, always without exception. Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. So, God doesn't change. But if he doesn't change, how do we make sense of this? Well, The first thing we need to do is we need to look at some other passages in Scripture where we find similar behavior, where we find uh, another event like this one where the Israelites go and they conquer an entire nation. And and the place that we looked at today is a good example, our New Testament reading. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 21. Um, Somebody tell me what page that is. It's probably like the last page. Revelation chapter 21, um, 603. Okay. 603. Turn to 603. This is a great passage, a beautiful picture of our redemption, right? It talks about what things are going to be like when Jesus comes back. God sitting at the center, wiping away every tear from our eye, no more death, no more pain. We read it a lot in church, but usually when we read it, we stop early. We stop around verse 6 or 7. We don't make it all the way to the end of the paragraph where it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire, 
which is the second death. It tells us that there is a time coming when sinners are going to be separated from God forever. Where they are going to be judged as God's enemies. Another passage like this is in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, he tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Does anybody remember that one? Lazarus was a rich man. Uh, Lazarus was a poor man, a very poor man, a sick man, laying at the gates of the city. And this rich man saw him every day and passed him by. But when they died, it says that this rich man was, was sent to a per, eternal punishment. And he's suffering and he sees Abraham. Again, this is a parable. But he sees Abraham and he asks him to send Lazarus just to, to, to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. And Abraham re- responds like this. It's Luke chapter 16, uh, starting around verse 19. He says... Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus, like, in a like manner, received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides this, between us and you a great chasm is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. So, again, this is a strange scene. In this scene we see that the proper relationship after the judgment is that that God's people do not relate to the people who don't believe in God. In fact, they aren't supposed to do anything to help them out. We see this picture that there is a point in which people will be beyond redemption. Now, let's compare this. um, Well, let me tell you this. Theologians... They talk about that type of relating with, the, with a certain word. They call it the consummation ethic. Okay? So I want you to say that. Say consummation ethic. All right. Consummation ethic. Put that in your head. That is when God's people are going to behave in a particular way after the judgment. Where there are people who are beyond redemption. But then we compare that to what we call the common grace ethic. Okay, say that. Okay, the common grace ethic. Now, this is the way of life that we see most of the time in Scripture. It's the ethic that we live in today. It's the ethic of the Good Samaritan. It's the ethic of Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Go out to the ends of the earth and bring as many people in as possible. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 14, where Paul says, how are they going to believe unless they are told? And how will they believe in whom they've not heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? Paul is begging us to go to the ends of the earth to tell as many people as we can, to redeem as many people as there are. The common grace ethic is the ethic of the Old Testament as well. In Leviticus chapter 19, we read how God tells the people of Israel to let strangers come in and glean off of their fields. In that same passage, he tells the, the Israelites they should love their neighbors as themselves. Common grace, it's this ethic that we live in uh, that, that, that comes out of the knowledge that God has shown mercy to the world. What I mean is, When the fall happened, when we first rejected him, God, instead of just wiping everybody off the face of the earth, he showed us mercy. 
He instead began this great rescue mission that has carried on to this day, where he is going all over the world to redeem every last one of his people. And we saw that picture in Joshua, remember? Remember the story of Rahab? Where before the conquest begins, before they go to conquer this nation, God goes and he rescues one last woman in her household and he says, you people belong to me? So in scripture, we, we have these two examples, right? On one hand, we, we, we see uh, the way we live today, this common grace ethic, where we are commanded by God that we should love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves. That's, that's how we live today. But the second way is this consummation ethic, where believers, at some point after Christ's return, are separated from non-believers, where God has passed his judgment and now his enemies are beyond hope of restoration. Thus, in this period of time, in this consummation period, we're actually not supposed to love God's enemies because they are people who hate God, who has redeemed us and rescued us. So now, are these two things contradictory? Well, no. What's different about them is the condition, right? What's different about them is the point in time. So today, obedience to God, it means seeking and saving the lost. Today, obedience to God means sharing about what's coming ahead and bringing as many people in as possible. But one day, judgment's going to come. And one day, those who reject God are going to be separated from God forever, and they're going to be declared as his enemies. So that's the first thing we have to understand. we got to know the difference between consummation values and common grace values. The same principle is working underneath all of it, but the circumstances are different. One is about how we relate to people before the judgment. The other is about how we relate to people after judgment happens. When Jesus comes back. Okay, so now that you know those things, those two terms, now we can move on and I can talk about my second point, which is spotting the intruder. And that's really what I, I want us to try to get our minds around this morning. Um, sometimes it's easy to spot an intruder, right? If somebody breaks into your house, you know they don't belong there, right? If there's somebody that you don't know in your home, you can tell that that person is an intruder. But uh, like the movie Wedding Crashers, okay? Those are, that's about some intruders that are, are harder to spot, right? It's these two guys, and their whole joy in life is blending in with the crowd, acting like they fit in. But you know, right, wedding crashing, like that's a, that's a real thing people do. Um, in fact, I was looking at uh, The Knot, which is like a wedding website, and they have a blog about like the top ten ways to identify wedding crashers that show up to your wedding. Um, but the idea was, you know, once you know the signs... Once you can identify these, these tricks, then they're much easier to find out. And some of them, uh, you, you maybe have, could have guessed them, right? He says the, the, the wedding crashers tend to have larger-than-life personalities, right? They're the life of the party. But, you know, who knows? Maybe you have, we all have somebody in our family who has a larger-than-life personality. That's not going to necessarily give them away. But then they said another, another good sign is that uh, their story keeps changing, right? From one person to the next. They give a different name or a different identity or a different background. But here are the good tricks. One of the things they said was uh, 
Wedding crashers like to find an elderly member of your family to dance with because they assume that that person, maybe their memory is not so sharp. Maybe that they can, they can vouch for you if you can trick them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. You're the second cousin of so-and-so. The other thing is the, the giveaway sign, though, is if there's assigned seating at the party, the wedding crasher is never sitting down. Wedding crashers always on the dance floor, always at the bar or at the bathroom because they don't have a seat. But once you know those things, if, if a person checks enough of the boxes, you can find out that that person is, in fact, an intruder. Now, in the Bible, we don't have wedding crashers, right? In the Bible, we do have another kind of intrusion, okay? This is, this is what I want to teach you about. This is called intrusion theology. And it can sometimes be hard to spot. But when you know the signs, you can figure it out, and things are going to start to make a lot more sense. See, we have these moments in the Bible when the ethics of God's consummated kingdom, these end-time values, break in to the present day. We have these moments where in the midst of a common grace world, a consummation ethic shows up. And they're rare. But if you can spot them, moments like this, like the conquest that we've been reading about in Joshua, make a lot more sense. So let me give you an example. Um, let me show you what I mean here. This period in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, the, the people of Israel, they are unique in all of history. They are like no other nation that has ever existed, not before them and not after them. No other, no other nation on earth has ever been like this. Um, last week we read chapter 10 through 12, and there was a story about all the different kings that were getting conquered when they came into Canaan. Do you remember that? Can anybody remember how many kings they conquered? This is extra credit if anybody can do this. Oh, man, that was really close. 37. Do I have another guess? It's in the right, in the ballpark. It's 31. I think you get half credit for that. 31 kings. There were 31 kings in the nation of Canaan when they came to over, overtake it. Now, how many kings did Israel have? Zero, right? Joshua wasn't their king. Who was the king of Israel? God was the king of Israel. He was the one who was leading and commanding the nation. That means that at this period in time... The leader of the nation of Israel was an infallible, perfect leader. Now, it's election week, right? I don't know if I need to remind you. Go vote. I think that we got a, another plug later. Go vote, everybody. You need to vote. Um, I'm sure we've all been reading the news. We all have lots of thoughts about who would be best to lead our nation and what kind of things need to happen in the future. But I think one thing we can all agree on, regardless of, of whatever politics we bring, is that no matter who we elect on Tuesday, they will be imperfect. The people that we choose to lead our city, to lead our state, uh, to lead our nation, they will be imperfect people. And that means, at times... They can make mistakes. And, and we might have grounds to question their judgment, to question their decisions. Who knows? They might even make unjust decisions and unjust laws. And if that's the case, we would have the rights to, to protest those things. And, if, and, and maybe if it comes to it, we would be required. If they, if they require us to do unjust things, we might, as God's people, have to disobey those laws. And face the consequences, right? That's what civil disobedience was all about. That's what Martin Luther King taught us all about. 
That's the basic principle, right? With, with imperfect rulers. They may do unjust and imperfect things. But what about for Israel? What about if God himself is making the judgments? What about if God himself is leading? Well, of course, then there, there are no errors. There's no mistakes. There's no need to question him. And that means the nation of Israel in the book of Joshua is unique. There is, this is the only time in human history, this nation where, is the only time when, when God was the king of a people. And so that means that, that Israel is, is kind of like a little miniature version of what we were just reading about in Revelation, right? They are a nation with God at the center. And here, in the book of Joshua, we see some of these values of eternity breaking into history. The Israelites, when they are told to go and conquer Canaan, they are actually bringing God's righteous, eternal judgment onto this nation, onto a people who have rejected God. And I'm not just saying that because of fancy theological tricks. I'm, the Bible very clearly says it, right? It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when they're just beginning to talk about the conquest. When God initially promises Abraham that he's going to give him a land, when he's going to give him the land of Canaan, remember he says, don't go there right now. He says, you're going to come back. Your, your descendants, years from now, in the fourth generation, they're going to come back to the land of Canaan for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says, you're going there to judge these people for sin, but their sin isn't full yet, so don't go. And then, after four generations, after years and years, after wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel now, this whole nation, they come to the edge of Canaan. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God reminds them again. He says, you're not just going in there to conquer some people and get a nice political land for yourself. He says this, once you've gotten the land, once you're resting in there, he says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out before you, do not say it's because of my righteousness that God has brought me in to possess this land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness, or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the words that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God tells them this conquest, all this stuff in chapters 13 through 21, all this land, it is more than just land. It is about God's final judgment against sin. This is the moment that is pointing forward to this great final day when God will come and he is going to wipe all wickedness off of the face of the earth. And for us as readers of scripture, once we understand that, then we can try to make something out of a book like this. In fact, only when we get that, right? Only when we realize that this is a unique moment in history are we going to be able to pick up Joshua and try to learn some lessons for ourselves, right? For example, 
If that's the case, it means we can't look at this book and then say, okay, well, the lesson of Joshua is the people who follow God the best have a right to kill the people who don't follow God. Right? We can't learn that lesson from this book. In fact, what we can learn is there are no nations left like this where God is the leader of the country. Right? America is not God's country. Israel is not God's country. Not in this way. There is no nation that was led, is led by God the way Israel was led by God here. That means that historically the Crusades, that was sin. It means that when the, the Spaniards conquered the West Indies and murdered people who wouldn't convert, that was sin. It actually means that anybody who is, is carrying out a war, who is carrying out murder and saying that this is something God commands me to do, that is actually, that's wicked, that's evil, that's, that's wrong. That's something you can't back up with scripture. But at this moment, at this point in history, God himself told Israel to show the world what his judgment is like. In Jericho, at the beginning of the conquest, the first city, we read that, that he saves Rahab. He saves her family. He, he redeems one last household, but everyone else in that entire nation is destroyed. In every other moment in history, the Israelites are told to welcome the sojourner, to try and lead the nations towards God. But here, they were told not to love their neighbors. This was a moment unlike any other moment. The conquest was, was an intrusion. It was a place where we have a small taste of this future judgment that's coming. And that's why, I mean, that is why when Israel fails at this, when they don't completely wipe the people out, when they imperfectly carry it out, God is angry with them. He calls it sin. Because God is trying to use the people of Israel to communicate a truth to us. He's trying to show us something about his holiness and how he is ultimately going to definitively deal with the sin of the world. That there will be nothing left there will be no sin left. It will be cast out when he shows up. And so how do we respond to that? That's the last thing I want to talk about, responding to the intruder. Maybe at this point you say, okay, this stuff is kind of helpful. It's good to know this theological stuff. Maybe it'll, it'll help me as, as I read scripture. But, but the truth is it doesn't really make anything better, does it? If anything, it kind of makes it worse, right? Because if, if this conquest is, is really about what God is ultimately going to do with sin, well, it means this isn't simply some historical moment. It's not just World War II that we're reading about or, or the revolution. This means that this book is about us. It is about God's absolute hatred for your sin and for mine. It is about his promise that he is one day going to wipe all sin off the face of the earth. It really is about Revelation chapter 21 where he says, he gives that list of people who, who can no longer be in his presence. 
the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now look, I know there aren't a ton of sorcerers here, at least not that I'm aware of. But there's a lot of liars here. That list, we're all in that list. And what we find out in Joshua in the conquest is that the day is coming when the common grace is going to end. When people who have rejected God will finally get what they have always wanted. They will be left alone. They will be separated from God forever. But that's not going to be satisfying. Being separated from God, that's not going to be freeing. Being separated from the only source of goodness and light and life in the entire universe is not a good thing. In fact, it's something we can't even really describe. It's something we can't really even fathom. It's something that when the Bible tries to describe what it's going to be like to be separated from God, the only thing it can come up with to describe it is a lake of fire and a second death. So that means, Joshua, this whole book is, is here. As we look at the Canaanite conquest, it, it puts the, the specter of God's terrifying final judgment right in our faces. And it kind of makes us, at least it kind of makes me squirm as I see that. I was reminded of Luke 13. It's a passage where people come up to Jesus and they ask him about these folks who've been killed. They've been slaughtered by Pilate. And Jesus responds this way. It says, there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think they were any worse sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These people in Canaan... Do you think that they were that much worse than you? No. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All of our sin, all of our rebellion is ultimately going to reach this end that we see here. Unless. Unless. Right? Because there, I, I, there is another moment of intrusion that is a lot more famous than this one. One that you probably have heard a lot more about. One that you're probably a lot more familiar with. There's another time in the Bible where God's judgment breaks into the present day. And that is the cross. In that moment, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, faced the unfiltered wrath of God. In that moment, Scripture says that He suffered for the sins of all His people. 
In that moment on the cross, Jesus took that agonizing, unfathomable separation from God. He faced that final judgment, that lake of fire. He took the full force of it. But the difference between Jesus and the Canaanites was, unlike them, his iniquity wasn't full. In fact, Jesus was totally righteous. Jesus was completely perfect. And that means that he died not because he deserved it, but because we did. And that's why after three days he could rise from the grave. Because he paid for sin. He conquered sin on the cross. And that means for us, that second moment of intrusion, that really changes everything. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, that means that we now have a place where we can run and hide. Because Jesus has already taken the penalty that we owe, that we have earned, it means that like Rahab, in the same way that she escaped from Jericho and she joined the people of God, we can run from our sin and run into the arms of Jesus Christ. And so when we see this kind of terrifying thing, when we see this picture of a whole nation wiped out and destroyed, and then we say, what are we going to do? Well, that's the answer. The answer is right here. It's repent. See the cost of your sin. Look at what's coming to you and repent. See the horror of it. See the destruction in your own life. You don't even have to look to the future. Think about the harm and the hurt your sin has produced in your own life today. And run to Jesus. Change sides in the middle of the battle. Our call this morning is to receive his righteous record for our own so that we can come into his kingdom not with fear but with joy. So that we can read this passage in Revelation 21 but instead of being scared knowing that we are included in that list instead we can look at this passage and dream of the day when we will be welcomed with open arms into the kingdom of God. For that day when it tells us that he will dwell with us. That we will be his people. That God will be with us as our God. That he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. That death will be no more. There won't be any pain or mourning or crying because the former things have passed away. I had a friend um, of mine and we were going through this Bible study and they asked him, you know, what is it going to be like for you the day that you, you meet Jesus? And, uh, and he told me that Jesus would come and, and give him a, a hug and be like, man, I'm so proud of you. Look at all the stuff you've made it through. It was really tough down there. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad to see you. I know the temptation and the struggle that you've been facing and I'm, I'm so happy to see you. That struck me because I, I always feel like the first thing God's going to be thinking about is all the stuff he had to forgive me for. <laughs> but the promise here is that, that when we see God, the only thought in our mind is going to be joy. He will be wiping the tears from our eyes. It's a glorious thing. So the last thing I want to say right before we, we close here, what does it mean for us today, knowing this stuff, knowing that there is coming a day when, when God is going to separate sinners from himself forever? 
One day when the people of God are no longer commanded to love their neighbors, but in fact, they will not be able to be near them because they will have been separated forever. Well, I hope our response as Christians is that it's going to make us desperate to love them more now. I hope that, that it will make us realize just how urgent the gospel message really is. I hope knowing that we live in this amazing time where God's grace is still alive and active and and available for all, that we would be sharing the good news with as many people as we possibly can. Or, Or at least trying to invite people to a place where they can hear it. That we'd pray for them, that we'd be desperate, that we'd cry out for them. That we wouldn't let this moment pass away. Because the next moment is coming. If you'll join with me, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful, um, even though we're stunned by this stuff. Lord, we're grateful that that you are going to welcome us with open arms. That we don't need to fear your judgment when we've come to you through Jesus. But Lord, we also, our heart breaks because we know that your judgment is real and we long to to see people come in to your kingdom. Lord, maybe there's somebody now in this room who knows that he isn't standing with you. And if that's the case, Father, I want to ask that you might reveal yourself. That you might rescue that person. That you might call them to yourself and bring them into your kingdom today. Lord, I pray for all of us weak and wounded sinners who've lived lives of disobedience, who find ourselves on that list of of sinners and we are filled with guilt and shame. God, would you forgive us today? Would you show us the great redemption you've won for us in Jesus and give us confidence to follow you? Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.